The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than a million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Today is a very special episode of the Science of Success. This is episode 100. I couldn't have imagined more than two years ago when we set out to start doing this show that we would do over 100 episodes, that we would interview so many amazing, incredible experts. But I'm super excited today. In this episode, we're going to discuss how our guest went from a hard-nosed skeptic who thought self-help was BS, to someone who uncovered the evidence-based growth strategies that actually work. We talk about our guest's journey from meeting self-help gurus to spiritual leaders and neuroscientists to discover the biggest lessons about improving your mind and body, and the simple, scientifically validated tools that evidence demonstrates are the best way to be happier with our guest, Dan Harris. I'm going to give you four reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Yeah, there's an extra fourth reason today. Why is that? Well, the fourth reason, I guess really we're going to start with the first reason, I have something special that we're going to do in honor of our 100th episode of The Science of Success. But you have to be on the email list to be part of it. So if you're not on the email list, you're not going to be eligible. In fact, you're not even going to hear anything else about this surprise, but it's going to be awesome. We're doing something really special for the 100th episode, only for the people on the email list. So you should definitely sign up. Next, if you sign up on the email list, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. Our most popular guide, it's called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide that you have to sign up to get by joining the email list today. You're also going to get a curated weekly email from us every single week called Mindset Monday, which listeners have been absolutely loving. It's a short, simple list of articles, stories, and things that we found exciting in the last week. Lastly, 
you're going to get an exclusive chance to shape the show. Vote on guests, submit your own personal questions for our guests, vote on changes in intro music, and much more. So make sure you go to successpodcast.com and sign up for the email list right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go right now, if you're moving around, if you're listening in your car, just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Text SMARTER to 44222 to get all of these awesome benefits. In our previous episode, we discussed the groundbreaking research behind the ancient molecule that fuels peak performance, looked at the foundations of neuroeconomics, talked about how our brains react during social interactions. We examined how our brains are designed to connect and built to work cooperatively. And we dug into the power of oxytocin and how you can increase it in your life with Dr. Paul Zak. If you want to know the science behind what makes your brain happy, listen to that episode. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Dan Harris. Dan is a correspondent for ABC News and the co-anchor for the weekend edition of Good Morning America. He regularly contributes to Nightline 2020 and World News and has covered stories from all over the world, including war reporting in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as investigative reports in Haiti, Cambodia, the Congo, and much more. Dan is the author of the book 10% Happier, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Dr. Oz, Good Morning America, and much more. Dan, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. So I'd love to start out, you have a fascinating background and story around what kind of led you down this path of studying self-help and, and meditation more deeply. Could you share that story? Sure. First, let me apologize for any background noise you may hear. I'm actually at my house and uh, there's possibility for noise in the background. So if that happens, I apologize in advance. I, I uh, am a reporter, a pretty skeptical guy. I <laughs> didn't have a lot of uh, pre-existing interest in things like self-help and meditation. I think it would be safe to say that I was, for most of my life, I thought that stuff was bullshit, would be probably the technical word. And what what started to change that for me was that back in 2004, I had a panic attack on live television. Um, I was anchoring the news updates on, on Good Morning America. So that's uh, kind of a term of art for the, the person who comes on at the top of each hour and, and reads the headlines, just gives you a basic rundown of, you know, here, here, here are the headlines of the day. And I, I had been at that stage in my career, this was a, that was, it wasn't my full-time job. I was kind of filling in that morning on that beat, but I had done it many times before. So I, I didn't, there was no specific reason that I was aware of for, for what was about to happen, which was that I, I basically just freaked out. I was, it was like 7.04 in the morning, and the, the main hosts of the show tossed it over to me and said, okay, here's Dan. He's going to give us the headlines in the morning. And just a few seconds into my, to, all I had to do was read six voiceovers, just basically quick stories off of the teleprompter, and then I would have, then I would be done. And, you know, again, I've been, I was in my early 30s. I had been doing this work for, at that point, 10 years. So this, again, this was a pretty basic assignment for me. And a few seconds into it, I just was overcome with fear. Uh, my heart started racing. My lungs seized up. I couldn't breathe. My, my mind was racing. My palms were sweating. My mouth dried up. It was just classic fight or flight response. And I had to do something radical to get myself out of the situation, which was I just basically quit. I somehow squeaked out, you know, back to you, 
to the main hosts of the show and they looked a little surprised and just took over from there. And so as embarrassing as that was, actually, what was more embarrassing was what caused it. Uh, I was and still am really a very ambitious news reporter. And at that point in my life, I had spent a lot of time overseas covering the aftermath of 9-11. So the war in Afghanistan. Uh, I had spent a lot of time in Pakistan as well. I covered the second intifada in Israel, so I spent a lot of time in the West Bank and Gaza. And uh, I had also I I made something like six trips to Iraq covering the war there, and that had produced for me a, an un, undiagnosed depression. Uh, so I was having trouble getting out of bed. I felt like I had a low grade fever all the time, and my the coping mechanism, which was extraordinarily stupid, was I started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine and ecstasy. Just just to be clear, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, The, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, where there's pounding quaaludes every five minutes. My drug use was not like that. Uh, it was pretty intermittent, um, and it was never when I was working, and I, I, never, I was never high in the air or anything like that. So after I had the panic attack, I went to a shrink who uh, is an expert in panic, and he was asking me a bunch of questions to try to figure out what went wrong. And one of the questions he asked was, do you do drugs? And I sheepishly said, yeah, I do a little bit. And he <laughs> he gave me a look, one of those classic shrinky looks that communicated the following sentiment. Okay, asshole, mystery solved. And he pointed out that even though I hadn't been doing drugs that long or, or that frequently, it was enough to artificially raise the level of adrenaline in my brain and prime me to have a panic attack. So that was a huge aha moment for me. And, and I realized very quickly that I had been very stupid. And that set me off on a long, winding, weird journey that ultimately led me to meditation. So I'll stop talking there, but that's the basic backstory. And one of the most interesting things that I that I really connected with about your story was how the the panic attack itself was was really a manifestation of of years of buildup and things all kind of culminating in that single moment. It wasn't just something at that particular time that triggered it, but it was all of these kind of underlying factors that slowly accumulated to result in that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sorry, you're hearing a little noise. It's what I would call a sort of a cascade of mindlessness, which is the opposite of mindfulness, which is what you learn in meditation, where I, I just wasn't in touch with my own. I wasn't in touch with a, a thunderously obvious fact that most of us are not in touch with, which is that we have a voice in our heads, by which I'm not referring to schizophrenia or hearing voices or anything like that. I'm talking about your inner narrator, the voice that chases you out of bed in the morning and is yammering at you all day long and has you constantly, you know, like wanting stuff or not wanting stuff, judging people, comparing yourself to other people, judging yourself, thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever's happening right now. I have a friend who's also a guy named Sam Harris, who's some, maybe familiar to some of your listeners. It's a good friend of mine, and he's also really into meditation. And he has this, has this wisecrack that he makes occasionally, which is that when he thinks about the voice in his head, uh, he feels like he's been hijacked by the most boring person alive who just says the same shit over and over, most of it negative, all of it self-referential. And, and what I realized you know, what I came to realize after in the in my little in my journeys after after the panic attack was that when you're unaware of this nonstop conversation that you are having with yourself, it yanks you around. And, uh, you know, it's why we, you know, we eat when we're not hungry or we, you know, check our email in the middle of a conversation with our child or we lose our temper when it's really not strategically wise. 
And for me, the voice in the head is why I had gone off to war zones without really thinking about the psychological consequences. I was really sort of wrapped up in idealism and curiosity and ambition. And then I came home, got depressed and was insufficiently self-aware to even know it. And then I blindly self-medicated and it all blew up in my face. And I think that's so powerful. And, and, you know, you see one of the things that you talk about in the book and the the stories that you've shared is that oftentimes all of this kind of self-help literature strikes many chords in the sense that it can kind of identify some of these problems and in many instances does a great job of pointing out that there's negative voice in our heads but sometimes can kind of go too far or or doesn't really offer practical strategies and solutions for resolving that yeah that that's exactly right so just to fill in some of the blanks there many years after the panic attack i ended up reading uh on the recommendation of one of my colleagues, actually, a book by Eckhart Tolle, who may be familiar to your listeners, huge self-help guru. I had never heard of the dude, but my producer recommended I read him because at the time, one of my areas of interest as a reporter was faith and spirituality, which was an interesting, I say areas of interest. It was kind of, I was forced to be interested in it because I was raised as a, basically by atheist parents. I did have a bar mitzvah, but only for the money. But the, the, my boss, Peter Jennings, who's now no longer with us, but uh, he had kind of strong-armed me into taking over the faith and spirituality beat. And as a consequence of that, my one of my producers recommended I read this Eckhart Tolle book. And Tolle was the first person who pointed out to me uh, via his book that I have a voice in my head. Again, not schizophrenia, but this inner narrator that we've discussed. And it was just a massive massive headline for me. I mean, I just, nobody had point. I just was unaware, you know, I mean, I knew of it. uh, I mean, I knew that I had thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, but I, nobody had really articulated this, this idea of, of our ego, our, you know, this con inner yammering that we have all the time and how negative and destructive it can be when you're unaware of it. But the problem with Eckhart Tolle, in my view is, and I'm going to paraphrase a friend of mine who says, Tolle is correct but not useful. So in my view, Eckhart Tolle beautifully articulates this, this phenomenon of the voice in the head, but there are several problems. One is like, he's really weird about it at at times and and engages in some pseudo scientific and dabblings and also like a lot of grandiose promises about spiritual awakenings and blah, blah, blah. So that's one problem for me. And the other problem for me is that, you know, I, I had a hard time, finding any actionable or practical uh, practical advice about dealing with the voice in the head in his material. And ultimately, that's what got me to... I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to Eckhart Tolle. I mean, I make fun of him a lot. But if I hadn't read his stuff, I never would have ultimately found meditation, which is a really simple, secular, scientifically validated tool for dealing with with this, with this fundamental fact about the human situation, which is that we, we have this stream of consciousness often driving us to do phenomenally stupid things. And in your journey, you met with self-help gurus, spiritual leaders, scientists, people across the board. And what was kind of the resounding conclusion from all of these different spheres of influence? Yeah, I mean, the, the self-help, my peregrinations in the self-help world, which I write about in the book, you know, I mostly put in there for 
entertainment value uh, because I didn't really get much useful <laughs> much uh, useful information out of it. But I it was pretty weird, and so it makes good copy. So I write about it. But when, once I started talking to scientists, uh, specifically neuroscientists who are looking at what meditation does to your brain and to your body, that's really what that for me was the the signal moment. Just seeing that there was this. There's this little community of what's called contemplative neuroscientists, uh, now not so little, but smaller at the time when I was looking into it many years ago, when I started to look into it, they were, they were really, they were doing this path, you know, this groundbreaking research, you know, for years, the, the dogma, the received wisdom in the, in the world of neuroscience was that the brain doesn't change after like your mid twenties. But in fact, what the research on meditation has shown us is that uh, you can train your brain very specific ways. In fact, we're all training our brains all the time, mostly in negative ways, mindless ways. You know, we're training it to eat crappy food or to watch crappy television or to, you know, be totally distracted by our devices. But actually the act of meditation, and we can talk about what that actually is, the act of meditation is training up the qualities that I think most of us would agree we want, like the ability to focus, the ability not to be yanked around by your emotions. The ability to be nice to other people, the ability to be nice to yourself, the ability to have patience, the ability to be gra- grateful for stuff. The, all of these, all of these qualities that we want are trainable, and that is that is an incredible, a, a radical notion. Because most of us think that happiness is dependent upon, you know, the quality of our childhood, the quality of our marriage, the quality of our work life, all of which are super important. And I'm not downplaying that in any way. I'm focused on all of those on all of those things. But in fact, what the science is telling us is that happiness is a skill uh, that you can take your responsibility for and train on your own just the way you can work on your body in the gym. And if you think about it, most of us spend so much time working on our bodies, working on our stock portfolio, our interior design, our cars, but no time working on and maintaining the one filter through which we experience everything, and that is our mind. So to me, the resounding headline out of my time with the serious scientists was that. So what is, you know, when you talk about meditation and people throw around different strategies and types of meditation, everything from mantra-based meditation, mindfulness meditation, et cetera, what do you think kind of the, how would you define it and what do you think the most effective forms of meditation are? So, you know, and I've read some of your writing about meditation as well. And, and, you know, I think it's important to honor the fact that there are thousands of kinds of meditation. I don't think it's useful for me or anybody to get overly dogmatic about the superiority of one over another. The word meditation, as one of my scientist friends likes to say, uh, the word meditation is a bit like the word sports. You know, it describes a whole range of activities and your know, water polo and badminton don't have a lot in common. And so there are tons of kinds of meditation. I have, I have gravitated towards something called mindfulness meditation. Because that is the kind of meditation that has been on the receiving end of most of the scientific research. Not all, uh, and lots of other kinds of meditation have been studied too, but most of the research that I'm aware of and the, the strongest research appears to really be centered around mindfulness meditation. I also like it because it's avowedly secular. So mindfulness meditation is derived from Buddhist meditation, and you can make an argument as I often do, that Buddhism itself isn't even really a religion. It can be practiced as one, but in my view, at its, it, it, it's, it's an interesting religion because the more fundamentalist you get, 
the less metaphysical you become, in my view, with, within uh, Buddhism. Some people disagree with me on that, but um, so I want to be clear that that's my view. But anyway, mindfulness meditation is derived from Buddhism, but it's stripped of all of the metaphysical claims and and religious lingo, and it's uh, and it's delivered as a secular exercise for the brain and the mind. And some might say the heart, although I try to avoid that kind of language because it can be off-putting to people like me. And and so basic mindfulness meditation is really simple. Uh, the beginning instructions are to sit comfortably with your spine straight so that you're you know not falling asleep. Although if you fall asleep, you know worse things could happen. It just probably means you need more sleep. So sit comfortably with your spine straight. A lot of people close their eyes, although you don't have to. You can kind of soften your gaze and stare at a neutral point on the floor or whatever. That's the first step. Uh, there are only three. The second step is is just to try to focus on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Usually you pick a spot where it's most prominent, like your the, your nose or your chest or your belly. And this is a this is an important thing. This is an important step because you're not actually thinking about your breath. You're, you're doing this interesting thing of just feeling it. You're just feeling the raw data of the physical sensation of the breath coming in and going out. And then the third step is the key to mindfulness meditation. And this is the this is the money move here, which is as soon as you try to do this seemingly simple thing of just feeling your breath coming in and going out, your mind's going to mutiny. Your mind's going to go crazy. You're going to start thinking about all sorts of stupid shit like what's for lunch? What, what Do I need a haircut? You know, why did Dances with Wolves beat Goodfellas for Best Picture in 1991? Blah, blah, blah. The, the whole game is is just to notice when you've become distracted and to start again and again and again and again. This is like a golf game with a million mulligans. And in fact, uh, a lot of people feel like they can't. I hear this all the time. In fact, I'm writing a book about uh, <laughs> writing a book that's coming out at New Year's that's about all of the reasons why people don't meditate. And the, I would say the number two reason why people don't meditate is because there's this feeling of I can't clear my mind. But the, the, the good news is you don't need to clear your mind. In fact, clearing your mind is impossible unless you are enlightened or dead. And so if you the, the way to think about meditation is is similar to going to the gym. You know, if you go to the gym and you're not panting or sweating, you're cheating. And if you sit to meditate and your all thoughts have disappeared, like you might want to go to the hospital or you should go to the mountaintop because you are enlightened. Really, the whole game of meditation is just to over and over have this collision with the voice in your head. And the reason that's valuable is that the more you become familiar with the insanity of your inner narrator and your ego, the less owned you are by the insanity. And so the goal of meditation is not to clear your mind. The goal is to focus your mind for just nanoseconds at a time on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, coming in and going out. And then when you get lost, start again, start again. And so the two benefits that really, the three benefits that really emerge from this are one, just a greater sense of calm, uh, two, a greater focus because you're, you're engaged in this daily of this exercise of trying to feel your breath coming in and going out. And then when you get lost, you start again. And that's like a bicep curl for your brain uh, on, on your ability to focus. And third is this word mindfulness. Mindfulness is just the ability, and this is the most important benefits, it's the ability to see what's going on in your head at any given moment without getting carried away by it. And that benefit is derived from just over and over and over seeing how fucking crazy you are and and then not but not reacting to it, you know, just trying to see it non-judgmentally. Oh yeah, 
that's right. I just got to, gotten distracted by a big blast of anger or I'm planning something or I'm thinking about something random or whatever. I don't have to deal with it right now. I see what it is. I'm going back to my breath. And then the value of that is in your the rest of your life when you're ambushed by a big blast of anger or you're tempted to eat the 18th cookie or you're tempted to say the thing that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of your marriage, you can you can catch it before you actually do it. It's like having an internal meteorologist that's pointing out the hurricane before it makes landfall. And that, to me, is the game changer. I think that's a great description. And I've heard, you know, one of the the simplest kind of explanations of that is that meditation is the return to breath, right? It's not this kind of state of having no thoughts, but it's really the act of returning to that state whenever your mind wanders. Yes. Yes. That is, it took me years to internalize this because all the basic meditation instructions, you know, I, I, for years I was a phenomenal and i'm talking about i've been meditating for eight years i've been publicly evangelizing for meditation for the last three and a half since my book came out and since my i started this app uh, also called 10 percent happier and a podcast also called 10 percent happier so i'm now a pretty public evangelist for this thing but for much of that time i have been a massive hypocrite because when i first heard the beginning instructions to meditation as a type a striver I basically ignored the third step, which is, you know, when you get distracted, start again, because I told myself, you know, the cocky asshole that I am, I told myself, you know, I don't need that step because I'm going to win at this thing. You know, I'm going to get so good that I'm not going to get distracted, which is, that is impossible. It's so phenomenally stupid. It, it ignores that what you just said, which is that the act of meditating is noticing you become distracted and starting again. That is the magic moment. And if you can be cool to yourself in that moment instead of doing what I've done, which is, you know, engaging in endless and useless rounds of self-flagellation around my inability to focus, then the whole thing starts to flow with much more ease. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. 
That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So tell me the story of how you kind of fell off the wagon and, and, and maybe fell out of the rhythm of meditating. That has never happened, actually, for me, interestingly. It is a real issue for many, many people. I don't want to pretend that I'm especially disciplined, just by way of an example to prove this to you. Not long ago, I, ha- I have a huge problem with around food. I'm a s- slim guy, but I have a huge sugar addiction because I am an addictive personality. And True story, not long ago, I ate so many Oreos one night while watching TV with my wife that I woke up in the middle of the night and puked. So I, I tell you that because I, want, I don't want you to think that I'm somehow some uh, militaristic, inhuman, disciplined dude. I'm not. But I have never fallen off the meditation wagon, largely because, <laughs> because you know, I'm now like so publicly uh, associated with meditation. I'm, I'm not willing to live with that level of hypocrisy. A, but B, more importantly, because I have a lifelong struggle with depression and anxiety, and it's so clear to me that when when I do less meditation, like if I'm if I'm like on a big breaking news story and I'm only getting a few minutes a day, that they, I can see how how much more noxious my inner weather becomes. I mean, it's just so clear. You know, I, I I do many things in my life to stave off what Winston Churchill has called the black dog of depression and uh, like daily exercises. And and it's not because I'm s- super disciplined. It's because it sucks so badly when I get depressed that I'm willing to be quite regimented about a few things in order to make sure it doesn't happen. That's something that I've, that I've dealt with as well. And, and I totally agree, you know, meditation, it's, it's really funny because the, the simplest things are often the most effective, right? Meditation, getting enough sleep, exercising on a regular basis. If you just do those, you're, you're 80% of the way there to battling back the anxiety and depression. Yes. I mean, uh, also I would add to that. I know you weren't trying to make a comprehensive list that I would just amplify your excellent point by adding in, you know, proper diet and having good relationships and meaningful work, whether it be volunteer work or, or your actual career. Um, like a sense of meaning in your life and also a sense of social connection either to family members or friends. These are the things you need to do in order to maintain mental fitness, in my view. And there's a funny story of my shrink, who's a really great guy and a sort of no-nonsense dude, also quite ambitious and very, very willing to point out when I'm being an asshole. When 
early on when he was helping me avoid panic attacks, quit doing drugs, et cetera, et cetera, he used an animal analogy to explain to me that like I really needed to take care of myself because of my how prone I am to anxiety, depression, and panic, the wonderful trifecta there. And years later, I went back to him and I said, remember that animal analogy you used? Remember, you, you told me that I needed to treat myself like a stallion? And he was like, no, 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 no. I said thoroughbred. Of course, I, being the, as I mentioned before, cocky bastard that I am, heard stallion. But in other words, it's if, if you are prone to these conditions, you do need to treat yourself like a finicky thoroughbred, you know, a hothouse flower. You need to take care of yourself because this is what it will lower the odds for recurrence. It, there's no silver bullet. Let's just be clear about this. And I don't, I certainly don't think meditation is that silver bullet. There's a reason why all of my endeavors are branded under 10% happier, you know, the book, the app, the podcast, because I don't want to do what I think, I don't want to be guilty of what I think is, is rampant in the 11 billion dollar a year howling sea of bullshit that is our self-help industry, where they peddle these sort of reckless panaceas. I just think meditation is another arrow for your quiver. So tell me a little bit about the the new project that you're working on and kind of diving into why people don't meditate. Yeah. So it, it grows out of the fact about, about, about two years ago, I started to work on a meditation app with my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who's just a kind of legendary teacher. And uh, we, we launched a sort of a minimum viable product about two years ago. And then we actually put up a, a much more, a much more fulsome 10% happier app about a year ago. And so, but we're still very much in the early stages and although growing fast, faster than I would have expected, because there seems to be a real appetite for this, for this kind of instruction. And in the course of doing this, uh, I've learned so much in the course of becoming, a, in essence, a small businessman, an entrepreneur. And what I've really learned is that I made some mistakes in my first book because I kind of cavalierly assumed that if I demystified meditation, made it seem fun and, and, and useful and told a funny story about it, that everybody would go and do it. But that is the human behavior change is so complex. And so what I, I think we now... Ha, the culture has really changed on meditation. When I first started getting interested in it uh, back in like 2008, 2009, it was actually, there was a huge stigma around it. I think there still is in many quarters, but it's really, that has really, that stigma has declined in many ways. But where, where, I, <coughs> where I think we are now as a culture is that the, you have millions of people who know they ought to be meditating, but aren't, can't get over the hump to do it. And so in the course of doing, of building this app, we did a lot of market and consumer research and, and started to identify what the main, we called them secret fears, but basically another way you could describe them is just main obstacles or myths, misconceptions and self-deceptions that, that stand in the way of uh, people meditating. And that led to a book idea, like, let's go, let's tackle the, let's, let's taxonomize these myths and, and misconceptions, like make a full list of them. And then really help people get over the hump. So we did this ridiculous thing where we rented uh, a orange rock tour bus. And me and one of my favorite meditation teachers, a guy named Jeff Warren, he's a Canadian hilarious meditation teacher. Me and him and a whole crew of people, we got in this bus and we drove cross country over the course of 11 days. And we met people who sort of embodied these various obstacles and we helped them get over the hump uh, and actually start a habit. And 
actually, if you want to, there's a, the book isn't out until January, but a lot of the material from the road trip is available on the 10% Happier app. So you can see the videos and, and get access to some of the, what we learned and also learn how to meditate there for free. And, you know, so I'll just a taste of some of the obstacles we encountered. The, the most the obvious ones are the, the biggest one, first, first of all, is time. People feel like I don't have time to do this. And the, I have good news on that score. And then I also have better news. The good news is I think what you should be shooting for is five to 10 minutes a day ish, you know, daily ish, you know, trying to get five to 10 minutes in most days. That's, I think, a, a really good goal to have. But, and here's the better news, if you don't feel like you're ready to do that, or if you, or if, you know, if you on one day, you're just too busy to sneak that in, I believe firmly that one minute counts. And so we are on the app building a lot of one minute, we have them up there now, and we're actually going to be doing even more one minute meditation as a way to help people get over what is the biggest obstacle, which is finding time for meditation. Too often, people think they need to do a really dedicate a ton of time to it. And then it becomes another thing on their to-do list, which is stressing them out, which is defeating the whole purpose of meditation, which should help you reduce stress. The second fear is this, which we discussed, which is the the idea that I, you're supposed to clear your mind, which I think we've thoroughly debunked that in the course of this conversation. Others include, and this is particularly prevalent among, among women, I found, the idea that meditation is self-indulgent, that, you know, they're sitting with your eyes closed and doing nothing. It's just like a complete waste of time and you ought to be out, you know, doing much more useful things. My wife uh, labored under that delusion for a long time. The answer to that, of course, is that if you are not taking care of yourself, you're, you're not equipped to, to help other people. It's like that cliche from the airline safety instructions. You know, if you, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first before assisting others, other, uh, let me think of one other obstacle. Yes, this will, I think, resonate with your audience. Another main misconception that stands in the way of a lot of people meditating is the idea that you'll lose your edge if you do it. We spent some time on our road trip with police officers in Tempe, Arizona, and some of them were really worried that, uh, you know, in their dangerous and fast-moving, stressful job, that if they started to meditate, that they would they would be ineffective. In fact, it could that it could be downright dangerous. And uh, again, I, I think this is a misconception. I think there's a reason why we're seeing some of the most people who are engaged in the most high octane work. So athletes, executives, scientists, lawyers are now using meditation because it sharpens your edge. It puts you in the zone. It, it, it allows you to be less yanked around by random emotions so you can stay on task and be maximally effective. And so that's why we're now seeing a lot of co police departments and, and Marines and, and soldiers embracing meditation. So those are, that's kind of a sampling of some of the obstacles we found. And, and uh, if you want a full dissection, you'll get it come, you'll get it soon. There's a couple of those that I'd love to break down. I mean, what, you know, the, the idea that, that you're losing your edge, I've definitely heard that. And, and it's so funny because when you really start practicing it, you can see how much more clear the the edges become you're so much more centered and focused and you know my my reaction to stressful situations now and it reminds me of i think a quote from i think it's marine corps snipers which is slow is smooth and smooth is fast and in the, in the midst of crisis my reaction is often to slow down because if you're slow and methodical you can see all the pieces moving around and you can figure out 
what do I really need to do right now? And if you're, if you're reacting really rapidly, you're getting whipped around by kind of the winds of fate and running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Oftentimes you're not only not being effective and trying to actually achieve what you want, but you're being counterproductive. Yes. I think that was beautifully said. And I think it's uh, fully accurate. And I'll be, you know, I, I write about this a lot in my book, this lose your edge myth was a massive factor for me. And it is possible to misinterpret the message of mindfulness and to, and to be passive in the face of life's challenges. And I've actually fallen into that rut. And I actually go into embarrassing detail about how I've done so in the book. But, but really, that is, that is the opposite of what meditation should teach you to do. It doesn't mean that you should be lifelessly and non-judgmentally observing everything and passive, passively resigned in the face of uh, challenges and, uh, and emergencies, et cetera, et cetera. The goal is that you should learn how to respond wisely to things instead of reacting blindly. Most of the time, there's no buffer between the stimuli in our life and our blind reaction to it. But with meditation, you're, you're able to get a, enough self-awareness that so, so that maybe 10% of the time when something infuriates you or scares you, you are able to respond, take a breath and respond with some wisdom rather than just getting yanked around by it. And that is massively valuable in stressful situations, in strategic situations, in interpersonal relations from your marriage to your colleagues to your bosses this can this is a is a, a, a huge game changer and again it's why we're seeing some of the people we admire the most you know the chicago cubs the u.s marines 50 cent that dude got shot nine times I'm, I'm glad he's using meditation to get some peace of mind so some of the most aspirational figures in our culture are embracing this precisely because it it, uh, it enhances rather than erodes your edge. And, you know, I, I think it speaks to a deep misconception in our culture, which is that if you get too happy, you'll get complacent. And I, I think I think that is to misunderstand what happiness is, that uh, people think that happiness is just like sort of passively resting on your laurels. But but uh, I, that to me isn't what happiness is. And I think you've kind of hinted at something that I think about a lot, which is how do we strike a balance between sort of acceptance and mindfulness versus achievement? And how do you think about that balance? Yeah, there's a something I've learned from my teachers, which has been really useful to me, which is the idea of non-attachment to results, which is going to sound counterintuitive at the beginning. If, you know, we're if you're achievement oriented it's very natural to feel attached to the outcome of whatever project you're working on. So I'm working, I have a startup company that is teaching people how to meditate through an app. Uh, I'm attached to whether we succeed. I'm writing a book that comes out in January. I'm attached to whether that succeeds or that's my inclination is to get overly attached. However, that is to willfully overlook some rather obvious things, which is that you are not fully in control of the universe. And, and everything is interconnected and multifactorial and, and the, the wise stance for, a, uh, for, a, for an ambitious person is to recognize that it makes sense to work really hard and stress and plot and plan on whatever you're working on, but then to rec recognize that at some point you lose control. And if you're not overly attached to the outcome of whatever you're working on, 
then you have more resilience to bounce back. You know, I'm, I'm, I have so many projects that I'm working on in my life, from my journalism career at ABC News, where I'm constantly launching investigative projects, to the app that I mentioned, the books that I'm writing. I have a podcast, and I'm always pitching new and new ideas. And you know, sometimes things don't work, or they don't, they don't go as well as I planned. And if I'm so knocked out and paralyzed by any setback, because I've become so overly attached to the success of the thing, it hinders my ability to, to be resilient and to, and to really to, to analyze with dry eyes what went wrong so that I don't do it again. So, the, yeah, that to me has been a just an incredibly valuable lesson. Don't get me wrong. I still, you know, I've had a couple of setbacks lately that really threw me for a loop. And it, I mourn, I mourn the loss of things when they don't go my way. And I can probably be pretty unpleasant if my, you know, my wife just walks into the house and if I gave her the phone, she would probably tell you how unpleasant I can be uh, in the days or weeks after uh, something doesn't go my way. But my, I think my bounce back time has gotten much better. And if we fall off, you know, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of going, going down the rabbit hole of thinking really fundamentally that everything is so interconnected, so multifactorial, that's really beyond our control. How do we, if we're in kind of that deep end of the pool, how do we pull back and still strive to build or, or achieve things in the world? Yeah, that's it's a great question. And uh, among many great questions, um, that's to misunderstand. And that's like the one of the classic pitfalls of this path is to fall into a kind of nihilism that like, oh, yeah, everything's so deeply interconnected, so fleetingly impermanent that there's no way I can have agency. That's not true. You know, it's it's somewhere in the middle there that you certainly have some agency and some ability to affect the universe, the world around you. You're just not the master of the universe. And sort of figuring out that titration is key. And figuring out what levers you actually can impact and which, which you cannot is really key. I don't have some secret sauce, some magic, some silver bullet that will allow you to navigate this. It's I'm constantly trying to figure it out in my own life. It's just, you know, the best way to proceed is from a position of clearly seeing what reality is. And that, like it or not, is reality. I think that's a great point. And, and something that meditation, I think, really helps crystallize is the ability to both see and accept things as they are, as opposed to as you want them to be. That's exactly right. And again, it's not like I don't struggle with this. I do. I, I mean, maybe some there are meditation masters out there who have some beautiful equipoise that allows them to move through the world like a ninja without without being getting upset uh, when things don't go their way. That That's not me. Again, it goes back to my old 10% happier thesis. You know, this is not about perfection. This is just about marginal improvement. And I would add, since I'm now stuck with this stupid 10% joke that I kind of pulled out of my butt, and that, that the 10% compounds annually. You know, the more you practice, the better you get at the stuff. That's another great point as well. And it's something that I think about a lot, uh, kind of on this journey. And in many ways, the the journey of the podcast as a whole is about this this compounded improvement. The idea that if we can make incremental improvements in our ability to manage our emotions, to think more clearly about reality, to understand you know, as we talk a lot about on the show, the mental models that kind of govern the world, those, those improvements compound over time to produce a really drastically different kind of understanding of the world, of yourself, and really your ability to create and achieve things in that world. 
I think that, I think that's exactly right. I think it's a really positive, useful message to be spreading. So good on you. So for somebody that kind of wants to get started with, with meditation, you know, what would either be maybe kind of a simple piece of homework you would give them as a starting point or, or just something, you know, that you would say to them is like, here's the dead simple way you could start literally today and just try it out. Yeah. So one overarching thing is, is that it should be cheap or free. I wouldn't, I'd be a little wary of somebody asking you for a ton of money to learn how to meditate. There are lots of options. So the three that come to mind are one, you know, I, the way I learned how to meditate was just by reading a few good books. As, as I articulated earlier, the basic instructions are pretty simple. It's very easy to lose your way though, because um, usually people have to start to have a lot of questions. So I, I just read a few, you know, basic meditation books and, and just went from there. The one one that I like in particular is called Real Happiness by my friend Sharon Salzberg, who's a, just a master teacher. I pick that you know pick that book up and it'll explain the basics to you and you're off and running. Come January, the book that I'm working on about the obstacles to meditation will be the book that I will recommend the most because that book will also include a ton of you know here's how to meditate. So anyway, one option is just pick up a good book. The other option is an app. Obviously, I'm partial to. Our app, Ten uh, Percent Happier, but there are lots of good apps out there, um, and they're all, all of us, all of them, uh, to my knowledge, teach you the basics for free. So, for example, if you download our app, you know there's a whole course that teaches you how to do it. You don't have to pay us anything, and and you can use that material as long as you want. And frankly, you you never have to pay us anything. If you want to subscribe, great, we love that, but uh, you, it's not mandatory. So. And, and if you don't like our app, there are plenty of options out there. So that's, that's another tip I would recommend. So books, apps. And then the third is if you live in a city where you can go to an in-person class, I highly recommend that. I think it's really useful to be in the room with other people who want to do it. I think that has kind of an HOV lane effect. And to be in the room with a teacher who you think is, who you know, you might want to taste test a little bit, go to different places. Like in, I live in New York City. There are tons of options. There are a bunch of there are meditation studios all over the city. Some of them are Buddhist. Some of them are Hindu. Some of them are secular, like this one chain that I particularly like called Mindful, M-N-D-F-L, which is run by a friend of mine. L.A. has a bunch of uh, both secular and Buddhist meditation centers, um, and we're seeing secular uh, meditation centers popping up in Miami, Austin, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. Also, if you don't, if you live in a smaller place, you may not have a meditation studio per se available, but there are often teachers who will teach some MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is, uh, again, the secular meditation style, which is an eight-week course, and it's offered all over the country. Just go do a little Googling. You might be able to find somebody in your area. And if you really, if you live in an area where there are no meditation teachers and you really want a teacher, there are, there are teachers who are willing to teach via Skype. What has been the hardest thing for you about becoming a consistent meditator? You know, like I said before, the for me, consistency hasn't been that hard. But and I feel a little sheepish saying that because I think it really is hard for a lot of people. And here's the you know, in working on this book, the the thing I learned about human behavior change is 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 perhaps the most important attitude with which to approach it is is one of experimentation and exploration. You should know we are not wired as, you know, we did not evolve for long-term 
planning about our health and well-being. We evolved to like escape from cyber saber-toothed tigers and like get the meal today. You know, we evolved for pretty immediate gratification and also to get our genes into uh, future generations. So changing your behavior to improve your health and wellness is a really hard thing. And I think just being aware of that and giving yourself a break and going into any new, any formation of a new habit with a, with a spirit of like, I'm going to experiment. I know I'm going to fail and that's cool. Rather than trying to rely on the extremely ephemeral an unreliable internal reservoir of willpower, which is a huge, uh, I think, often sort of destructive myth in the, in the behavior change world. People think, oh, well, I don't have willpower. No, you just you need to find you need to experiment and see what works for you, what pro- provides what works with your schedule, what provides you with the benefits you need to be pulled along by by the by the benefits, by the uh, by the positive outcomes of the practice rather than, you know, trying to whip yourself over the back and force yourself to do the thing, because that's not a recipe for a sustainable habit. So boiling it down, just experiment, try different times a day, try different apps, try different books and just know that you will fail and that you just need to have the resilience to get up and start again once you fall off the wagon. It's totally fine. And for listeners who want to want to learn more about you, want to dig in and read the books, check out the app, where can people find you and, and these resources online? Well, thanks for that. The book's available on Amazon. The app is available uh, if you have an Apple device. You can download us in the App Store. If you don't have an Apple device, we're working on a, an Android version, which should be available in the pretty near future, I hope. But if you don't have an Apple device, you can get a web-based version at 10percenthappier.com. And uh, the podcast, 10% Happier Podcast, is available wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, I think the pitch for the podcast is that basic meditation is pretty basic. The cliche is that it's simple but not easy. So it, it can start to feel a little stupid after a while, just sitting there watching your breath. One thing that I found to be incredibly useful is to have sources of ongoing inspiration. And that's why I started the podcast, because you'll hear from great meditation teachers. You'll hear from celebrities um, you know, we've had the lead singer of Weezer on, we've had athletes on, we've had uh, Marine, Marine Corps folks from the, from the U.S. military, Josh Groban, the singer, blah, blah, blah. We have lots of people on. We talk about meditation, how it plays out in an indi- individual mind and life. We talk to cops. We talk to all sorts of people. And I find that for me as the host and hopefully for the listener, that this is just a way, it's just like a support for your practice. Well, Dan, thank you so much for for coming on the show and and sharing your uh, amazing story and all of this wisdom about meditation. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based personal growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I personally read and respond to every single listener email. I want to give you a couple reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. First, we're doing something special in honor of our 100th episode, but you have to be on the email list to find out what it is and to be eligible to participate. Next, you're going to get an exclusive weekly email from us every single Monday called Mindset Monday. It's short, simple, awesome articles, TED Talks, and stories, things that we found exciting in the last week. 
You're also going to get an exclusive chance to shape the show, vote on guests, submit your own questions to our guests, vote on major changes in the show. So if you want to be part of what we're creating here, make sure to get on the email list. Lastly, you're going to get our awesome free guides that we create based on listener demand, including our most popular guide, How to Organize and Remember Everything. Listeners have been absolutely loving that guide. It's super helpful, and it's exactly the system I use to keep track of all the information I get from interviewing amazing guests, reading a ton of books, and and much more. So be sure to sign up and join the email list today. You can do that simply by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're driving around, just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment that you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. And don't forget, if you want to get everything we talked about in this show, all the information, links, transcripts, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can find them at our website, successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.